Welcome to the Legacy Podcast. I'm Chris Wilmerding, your host. The show is a series of conversations with business owners about their beliefs and values and which beliefs and values they want to share with the next generation. If you want to be a guest on the show, simply wait until the end of this 20-minute segment and we'll provide a link. Simply sign in at that point and we'll be in touch with more information. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Dio, and I have a very special guest with a, quite an interesting background, Howard Getson of Capital Logic. So rather than me going into explaining what he does and, and making it sound not as great, but I'll have Howard go right into it. So Howard, what's this is a hard question, but uh, tell me about your business. Well, um, I self-identify as a technology entrepreneur, uh, but I think most people see me as a hedge fund manager. Mm. So uh, I, I do, in fact, run a hedge fund, but really I run the data science company that builds the AI that powers it. And uh, it, it's pretty much been the only thing I've done since the year 2000, but really it goes back to 1991. Uh, I've been the CEO of an AI company since then. And back then it was hard to spell AI. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that. Like, how did you get to being the CEO of an AI company? Um. <sighs> really weird response here, but uh, when I was two, I, I was almost three, but, you know, young. I told my mother that a nanny was hitting me and mistreating my brother. Uh, she didn't believe me. Um, it, basically tried to tell me it's wrong to lie, apologize to the lady. And I said, I'm not lying. And a few weeks later, my brother died uh, as a result of the mistreatment. Mm. Um, you may wonder how that relates at all, but the point is, is humans are confronted with so much information and they often make such horrible decisions. How do you know it's signal? How do you know it's noise? How do you know what you know? How do you make a better decision? What is better? Um, it fascinated me my whole life. Um, so many of the best decisions I made were lucky. Um, so many of the worst decisions I made were intentional. Um, and how do you, in a sense, improve the odds? How do you, how do you eliminate some of the fear, the greed, the discretionary mistakes, uh, the cognitive biases, the decision that it's better to be right than happy? Uh, so many different things that happen are the result of what you focus on, what you make it mean, and what you choose to do. And the meat suits that we bring to that game um, are evolutionarily programmed for flight, fight, or freeze. Um, 
And as the world gets faster and more competitive, it becomes important to respond in a more dynamic, agile, appropriate way. And so I've been drawn to AI increasingly. Um, I make a joke that AI is a good substitute for lack of the real thing. But, but there's a ton of things that humans are great at. And there's a ton of things that AI still sucks at. And it, it's, it's kind of just uh, a fun game to figure out how to make it better. There's a lot. <laughs> that I, there's a lot of questions that I have. The first is when you say people would rather, they have to choose between being right and happy. What do you mean by that? Well, I could substitute a lot of words for happy. Let's see. Um, I'll use trading for an example. Um, One of the first ways that I started to automate trading was not with technology. It was with a person. Uh, I hired somebody to exit trades that I made. And the reason is, is that as I made a trade, I knew the rationale. You know, I would mark up thousands and thousands of charts. Um, I, I couldn't go to bed until I felt like I was prepared for the next day. But I had all these ideas. And when I'd see one of them play out, you know, I would I would act on it. And then maybe the market reversed and went against the trade. But I still was committed to the rationale that caused me to make the trade in the first place. Um, you can call that something like long and wrong, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, and normally I'm pretty good at measuring all the money ball statistics about uh, what percent of the time should you win? How big is your average win compared to your average loss? You know, for every unit of risk, what, number of units of reward do you expect? But there was a category of trades that I called too far gone. And the too far gone trades were things that it was better for me just not to think about. uh, But it was the result of me wanting to be right rather than to be rich. Um, Mm. And so that's rich versus happy. Um, This is not something I do, but... uh, it's something that I certainly see happen around me. Uh, there are some people who fight, you know, in an argument. And if they realize they're wrong, they actually fight harder. Um, and and it's great. It's like they would rather be right than happy. Um, they would They would rather be right than admit they were wrong. And one of the hallmarks of AI is basically taking in the information and trying to be right quickly. And it's okay to be wrong. It's just you take in more data and you try to be right. And so it's about knowing faster. Mm. It's not about predicting better. It's about figuring out what signal, what's noise And how do I know something that tells me that the playing field is different or the game should be different or the strategy or the tactic or the technique should change? Hmm. Yeah, there's a concept what we call, I'm not sure if it's prevalent, but uh, no sunk cost mentality is, is, is what we're, it's, it's the idea to 
that if you just because you've put enough t- put time and hours into thinking that your decision is right exactly what you said doesn't necessarily mean so it's right let, let me check if i understand what you mean yes uh forget how long somebody has worked for me or how much i have paid them to get to here if knowing what i know now would i hire them and if not get rid of them mm-hmm. it's to that extent it's knowing that the dynamics changed the environment's changed and that what got you here isn't actually what is what's going to get you further so almost burning the bridges if you will so how do you apply that to life i mean being agile and and it been being humble is probably one of the one of the values that you have to bring with that mindset. How do you how do you apply it to life? It's funny that you use the word humble. I would use the word mindful. And mm-hmm. they probably are relatively close in in the way it's perceived by outsiders. But mindfulness to me is the perspective of all perspectives. It's it's the ability to see Let's use uh, archetypes as an example. In every society, there's a king and a warrior and a lover and a, you know, the the advisor. And in any situation, if you put yourself in a different role, if you put yourself in the role of one of those archetypes, there's a best next step. But the warrior's best next next step is going to be different than the spiritual advisor's best next step. Not always, but often. (laughs) And it's hard for people to realize how functionally fixed they become in their perspective. And they think that because they have experience and they saw something happen, that it's true, that it's real. Um, But somebody looking from a different perspective who edits the video a little bit differently would have a different truth. And, and so the concept of things being absolute true or absolute right or wrong um, becomes harder and harder to consider a good strategy when your business is thinking up so many different ways that you could solve a problem. You, you come at it from different vectors, different dimensionalities, and, and you realize that an answer isn't the answer. And in fact, if you stop at an answer, it's probably intellectually lazy. It's more important to be able to watch how you could solve this, if it's a hedge fund trading, arithmetically, statistically, using game theory, behavioral economics, uh, utility function. Um, There are so many different ways that I could optimize or have a fitness function that will create a different right, a different answer. And then there has to be a higher level of thinking that evaluates those different activities or results and says, but which one's really getting you the result that you want? And the thing is, is imagine in a hedge fund having many, many algorithms that trade and Somebody comes in and say, well, which one's your best? Hmm. How, 
how do you how do you even start to answer that? Is it do I just run a competition where I look at the data going back to uh, let's just say 2003 because that's when electronic trading started, and I say, well, I've looked at all of the trades from 2003 till now, and this is the algorithm that made the most money. It's easy for me to know what that is. I mean, I I, I can press a button and I will know the answer. Um, on the other hand, was it the one that lost the least money in the crash of 2008 or during the COVID crisis? Or was it the one that had the best risk-adjusted return? Or was it the one that was least correlated to my other stuff? Mm. Or, the point is, is I could probably think of a hundred different ways to figure out best. And as a human we're limited to seven things plus or minus two to keep in our brain. So you have to create shortcuts. But if you've got an AI company, you can actually track all of it and measure it in meaningful ways. And, and the, the result for us is a multi-tiered AI where the lower level systems are doing things that you think they are like a, a trading system, something that would buy or sell something. Um, uh, I've got a, a piece of artwork in our office that says we start where Wall Street stops. And the point is, is a trading system for us is the lowest level of our system. And I would never give it money. What we do is we use it as a sensor in a network. We give it fake money. We let it think it's trading. But I've got thousands many, many multiples of that um, doing what they do in real time. But then there's a, a watcher level, a mindfulness level above it saying, you've been weighed and measured, you've been found worthy, and you've been found wanting. And the trick at this level is not to try to find the best. It's actually to eliminate the things that aren't relevant. Um, so we might be looking at certain markets and wasting CPU time, right? But at a certain point, if we say, hey, let's not pay attention to that market and that market, then you look at the technique level. Oh, uh, these are all working okay, but that, that, and that seem to be out of phase. Um, you go through successive levels of figuring out what to avoid, what to ignore, and then you have far less combinations of things to evaluate. And so we don't try to optimize until the very end of the process. What we're doing is we're observing, we're being curious. We're trying to figure out what pivots are possible. It's about possibility, not certainty in the beginning. And we only get certain later after we figure out which possibilities actually lead to outcomes that we're looking for. Because I can imagine a possibility might be a double-edged sword where possibility there's an there's a bright and sunny future of possibility but there's also this loss aversion of possibility <laughs> so so um in personal development but also in ai um, um, it's very important to figure out what you want now you can want something like to avoid risk but is that really what you want or did you, I mean, the thing is in personal development, 
they say that you have to focus on what you do want rather than what you don't. By focusing on what you don't want, you're actually noticing all the things you don't want. You're changing your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly have many la- layers of what I would call risk protection or risk aversion. But you have to ultimately understand what you're searching for more than what you're trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's important to state what you're looking for in a way that makes you strong rather than weak. Even if you have the right idea, um, I think of it almost like a Geiger counter. Uh, I I think about conversations this way. I think about interactions uh with humans or uh, ideas, but it's, it's, there are things that make me strong or, or give me energy, cause me to vibrate faster. And there's things that make me weak. I mean, there's times I get a phone call from somebody, my assistant will come in and say, this person's on the phone and I'll say, Oh, and it's like a balloon half deflated. Now I'm not a spiritual woo woo guy, but, uh, On the other hand, it's almost as if the universe whispered in your ear, that's not your path. The Mm -hmm. arrogant human says, oh, no, I can make it work. Um, But I think it's really important to figure out what lights you up and makes you more. And the things that don't light you up, don't make you more, aren't necessarily bad. They're just not for you. It's a who, not how issue of... uh, Is that an opportunity or a career upgrade for somebody else? But focusing on things that give you energy or make you more actually helps you continue to make progress as you slog through many of the challenges that make most people stop. But uh, I think most people who stop would be surprised how close victory was to where they were when they stopped. Um, what, what? If, if you're moving in the right direction and you know you're making progress, then you can achieve your goal 100% of the time as long as you don't stop. Uh, the the reasons to stop should be if you've decided there's something better um, or you really have decided that it's not worth it. But, but if it's worth it and it's really your goal and you're making progress, um, then you have to think about what's the lost opportunity cost of not pursuing that thing. I think that really comes down to you have to commit to the right things. You can do anything you commit to, uh, but it means you have to be more judicious in choosing the things worthy of your commitment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of commitment is the difference between interested and committed, interested being open to new ideas, but committed is willing to say no to other things. Yeah. And then for those who want to be masterful and committed is a very weak form of masterful. So what, what, when you were transitioning for those, the audience doesn't know, but you were an attorney at one point, what did (laughs) that, what did that 
self-dialogue or self-questioning look like? How did you provide more clarity into pivoting into what you are doing today? Uh, It goes back to that Geiger counter. Um, You ever get to a point where you achieve the thing that you wanted to achieve and then you look in the mirror and go, is that really what I wanted? Um, There's got to be more than this. Um, When I was a lawyer, uh, I was really, really good at a certain thinking piece of contracts. Uh, I was, I was good in transactions and deals and I liked the game, but I really think that what I enjoyed was the game and the people I was playing with the, the entrepreneurs. And I like that so much more than the lawyers I played with on the other part of what we did. And over time, I started giving speeches, uh, Comdex, Macworld, all over the place on on how lawyers might use technology, because uh, this was way back in the mid to late '80s, and you know, lawyers did not type at that point. N- n- lawyers did not have computers on their desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw a world where you could be more efficient, more effective, and, and have a better result. And partners in that firm said to me, efficiency isn't important. You're going to bill 40 hours a week, whether you're efficient or not, and the client's going to pay for it. Um, and I said, oh, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Um, Ultimately, uh, in 1991, I, I didn't really leave practicing law. I became a partner in a law firm that was going to expand their technology practice. And we started a technology consulting practice for lawyers hmm. so that they could hire us as co-counsel and we'd help them buy the right kind of computers. And I never really went back to practicing law. And even though I was still a lawyer, (laughs) um, I wrote a couple computer programs and it's hard to even call them that now, but uh, to manage a a lawyer's clients and matters. So, you know, uh, you, somebody might hire you to form a corporation and to do uh, an asset purchase and then a, a promissory note, and then an employment agreement. So it's one client, but many matters. Mm-hmm. And I started to give it to some of my clients. And then I started getting phone calls from random people saying, well, you know, how do I do this and that? And I was like, who are you? And it turns out that my lawyer clients had just given the software to their clients and they were starting to use it for Salesforce automation. Oh, and, uh, and, and, and a client in a matter became, you know, a prospect and an opportunity. Um, and you only have to hit me in the head 15 or 20 times before I say, Hey, wait a minute, maybe, maybe we actually invented a Salesforce automation software. This is before they had terms like Salesforce automation or mm-hmm. CRM. Um, and it became a very lucrative business, but for me, it was fascinating 
because there was a, an early version of AI in there. I called it filtered relevance. And it was for each actor in a process, what would be the three best things for them to focus on? And it was really about how to help them ignore the irrelevancies and focus on the things that were most proximately related to performance. Um, and I ran that company from 1991 till 2000. And uh, I sold in uh, January of 2000. Um, and by February, I had started this company. Um, but no side hustles, no other stuff. It's, it's just been something that I'm passionate about and I'm willing to do for a long time. Uh, in fact, I just committed to another 25 years of doing it. Um, AI is going to be looked at later as similar to electricity. <laughs> um, it's it's going to radically change the planet and the way people live. Um, the, the CEO of Google recently said uh, he thinks that it will become as important as fire, mm. you know, the discovery of fire. I think that's, you know, hyperbole. But on the other hand, AI is very limiting. So I've devoted my next 25 years, my legacy, if you will, to something I call amplified intelligence. And, and amplified intelligence to me is about making better decisions. It's about taking smarter actions, being able to measure and improve performance so that you visibly, verifiably, realistically are leveling up. Mm -hmm. And as I think about the exponential nature of how fast technology is improving, so it, it's, it's more compute power. You can do more CPU cycles per unit time than ever before. You've got access to more and better data. Um, and new and better tools for evaluating and looking at things differently is there. Seems to me like this is, this is one of those fulcrums um, that with the right lever can move the world. And, and so instead of focusing on the hedge fund, which to me is like a golden egg, uh, you know, it's a really cool thing and you could, want to make it polished better and do, but really the thing that lays the golden egg, the platform that creates those capabilities should really be the focus. And so uh, I, I'm committed to making the product more generic so that it doesn't just create financial products. Uh, but the fact that it can is cool. I look at it almost like a digital manufacturing plant. You know, in the old days, uh, people handcrafted things. And then all of a sudden in the industrial revolution, they figured out that you could have assembly lines and automation. Um, well, now we're doing that on 
digital or intangible things, not just the tangible things. Um, and it, it's easy for me to produce more things faster, but it means that I have to have all sorts of automation and error checking to make sure that you're not producing crap. Um, I, I have another piece of artwork in my office that says AI is cool, but artificial stupidity is scary. Um, you don't want to miss, you don't want to make mistakes at light speed, but I also believe that some of the most highly automated companies are the least efficient because it's so easy to use the automation. They don't think about the fact that they're recalculating the same thing over and over and over again. Once you know something, I don't have to try to discover it again. So as we invent a new technology or a new bot, why have it? discover stuff that's already been mapped and surveyed and weighed and measured and known. We have to transfer that knowledge and, and have new and better technologies start with that as an assumption and, and move on from there. Um, mm -hmm. As I think about AI, um, even our most amazing algorithms, uh, it's called AI, artificial intelligence, in a sense, because you're comparing it to a human, right? I mean, that's what they say by artificial. Uh, I don't think it's really artificial, but, but the comparison to a human, even our most amazing algorithm would be profoundly autistic. Hmm. Um, you know, somebody with Asperger's, might be high functioning, but they find it hard to be empathetic or think about things from somebody else's perspective. Um, and autis autism is further on that spectrum. Um, I, I think that even the best algorithms right now are profoundly autistic in a sense that they do what they do, but they're not really aware of the world or your perspective or a different way. Um, mm -hmm. And so the workaround is a lot like an ant in a colony. Each individual ant can do whatever it does. And an ant is amazing in its own sense. It can lift 150 times its weight. It's, you know, how, how big could its brain be? It's so tiny. But the colony is actually a species like, like the, the ant itself is an organism, but the, the colony is too. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what's going to happen to AI is you're going to see better communication, coordination, collaboration between these disparate decision-making or data gathering nodes so that it's like pixels on your TV screen. Or, or on the computer screen, you're looking at this. It looks like a picture of me or you, um, but really it's lots of little dots. Mm -hmm. And that's how I look at AI is a whole bunch of disparate things working together towards a collective goal. <laughs> but it means you're going to have to teach AI how to communicate.
you're also going to have to teach them how to do dispute resolution. There's also going to have to be hierarchy where somebody is the leader. Um, you also have to have the concept that this is a young, inexperienced bot that needs training. And there has to be, in a sense, algorithmic um, altruism, where, where a bot donates some of its time to help the other bots in the area. Um, mm, and, and I know this sounds crazy, but uh, this is... Uh, these are things that have been proven to be successful evolutionarily through millennia. Um, many of those same concepts apply in the digital realm as well. When building an algorithm and understanding good decision versus bad decision, how do you reflect back on or, or if you do reflect back, how do you reflect back on your own personal decisions and how AI helps you with your own personal decisions? If, if any. Well, if, if you're the person building algorithms, um, part of what you're trying to do is create a framework for better decision-making. So you're thinking about thinking. Um, most people are capable of reacting to something. They're even capable of feeling emotions about something, but a far smaller group of those people actually think about what's the process I'm going to use to come up with the best decision? Um, you certainly don't do that when somebody says, Hey, let's have dinner. Where do you want to go? Mm -hmm. Right. You, you may not even do it when you're buying a car, you may look around until something catches your eye and then you drive stuff till something feels right. Somebody else might use a, a much more analytical approach. But, but none of those things are thinking about the thinking. Then, then once you've then been able to do that, somebody who's then saying, well, what does that mean? And how can I make that better? And what would be more efficient or more effective or more certain, which means to get a better result in less time with less effort or with greater degree of probability. Hmm. Um, once you start learning to think like that, you become less fixed in your approach and you become more flexible um, just by nature. Um, I'll tell you an interesting sidelight here. When we code something new, um, the head of data science probably assigns it to multiple people. and. They write it in different languages. They're not allowed to uh, collaborate. They, they do it themselves. And he acts like an advisor. And he waits until multiple people think they're done. And in a sense, they've come up with the same answer. We don't believe that we have the right equation <laughs> or the right algorithm until multiple people 
come to it from different perspectives, even using different languages. Then once we know that the equation's right, then we think about what language helps us be more efficient, more effective, or more certain. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, you have to think about the core algorithm before you think about how to code it. Yeah, it reminds me of a, not to make any book recommendations, but it reminds me of a book that I read called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, the poker player. It's a great book. Yeah. So the, the example that she gives is, you know, if the objective, if the result is driving home safely and you only look at the result, but the the means of getting driving home safely, if you were to drive drunk, that's a bad decision, <laughs> but a good result. So separating the decision from the result and looking at it independently. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people associate passion with good, um, but I associate emotion probably having a very negative effect on objective decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're looking for something that inspires passion or revulsion or fear, or, but in a sense, fear and greed are probably some of the biggest reasons that people make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some of the most important decisions you make are often made in a hostile environment. Your heart rate's over 90. Uh, my guess is that's a less than optimal decision. There are some people who are better at that than others. Um, I was a competitive athlete and sometimes in the, heat of battle things slow down for me it's an advantage but really an advantage is to be able to recognize you're supposed to make this decision and think about what's the best way to make a decision like that and i will not make certain decisions if i can tell my heart rate's over 90 Mm -hmm. because Again, evolutionarily, I'm wired, fight, flight, or freeze. And once my heart rate's over 90, uh, it's way more likely that we're in that realm. So getting back to, I'm sure we could talk for hours. <laughs> getting back to the, the thought of legacy, how does this all play into legacy, your thoughts on legacy and what type of legacy you want to leave. I've thought about that a couple of times recently. Um, I was listening to one of my kids talk to somebody about me and they always lead with pain tolerance. Oh, you wouldn't believe, you know, how committed he is to this. And that's not what I want my legacy to be. Um, it's part of what's made me successful. Um, but I, I'm committed to making things better, right? Leaving things better than I found it. I, I do that with people. I do that with relationships. I do that with businesses. I do that with ideas. Um, and in a weird way, it's my form of loving. Um, Mm. now loving is a form of speech called a nominalization. 
you're putting ing onto something that would have otherwise been a verb. But love can also be a noun. And I, I realize that's a weird way to think about this, but love as a noun is a thing or a state of being, right? But love as a verb is a choice. It's it's an action. It's effort. <laughs> yeah, it's intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sense, this is one of the ways that I express love is helping make things better. But a lot of times people don't see your intent. They only see the ripples you leave in the world. And I often am telling somebody that they were wrong or they could do better. And it doesn't always feel loving, even though the intent is. So I'm trying to get better at delivery. uh, Because at this point, I'm pretty clear that concept of amplified intelligence Um, I want to give people the ability to, to use that or our unique ability to enhance their unique ability. Mm -hmm. It's less, it's less about you and more about them. Except you can only control you. So for me, I have to be extraordinarily focused on what I'm focusing on, what I make it mean, and what I choose to do, even if it means to them or with them or for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) I think uh, this is definitely a, a... an interesting new perspective. I think I'm so grateful for having this conversation. I think this might be, if there weren't any time limits at all, this could be one of those three hour episodes. But um, if you want to know more about Howard Getson, where can we find you or where can people just search you? Yeah. Um, If people text the letters AI, to 972-992-1100, then we'll sign them up for my weekly curated list of the links that I find most interesting about business and life. Um, I have uh, 20 lighter links, uh, and it might be about AI or some business thing or, or mindfulness. Um, and then there's 20 kind of market related links that have something to do with crypto or AI or trading or business in general, but, uh, we never sell anything. And, uh, it's, it's a great newsletter. Uh, in addition, once a week, uh, there's, uh, two short thought pieces um, so hopefully people will just text AI to 972-992-1100, or they can go to our website at uh, www.capitalogics.com. Capitalogics is spelled C-A-P-I-T-A-L-O-G-I-X.com. All right. And before we leave, um, if you were to give advice on leaving a legacy, what advice, where would you start? 
with the end in mind. That's the biggest mistake that most people make is they think about where they are and they think about how to get to next rather than thinking about where they really want to go and then saying, so what's the midpoint between there and here? And then what's the midpoint between there and here? And then what could I do now that moves me in that direction? But it, it, it really is beginning with what you choose rather than what you're trying to avoid, beginning with the end in mind. Well, thank you, Howard. It's been a pleasure. Again, uh, reach out to Howard. I'll put in the, uh, the text number in the show notes. And thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Business Legacy Show. If you're a thoughtful business owner who would like to be a guest on this program, please visit businesslegacypodcast.com slash guest. That's businesslegacypodcast.com slash guest. Now, if you got something out of this interview, please share this episode on social media. Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you do that, tag us with hashtag business legacy podcast. Again, hashtag business legacy podcast. Each month we scour Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. We pick one winner from each platform and you get crowned king or queen of that social media. What do you win? We're going to promote you and your business to our audience of over 150,000 people totally free. Now, can you hook us up in your podcast player right now? Please give us a thumbs up or a rating and a review. We promise to read it all and take action. We believe that a person's legacy is the most important thing someone can leave the next generation, and your feedback helps us fulfill our mission. And while you're at it, hit that subscribe button. You know why? Because every week for 15 minutes, you are going to be inspired and motivated to leave a lasting and meaningful legacy. My name is Chris Wilmerding. Let's connect on the socials. You'll find all the stuff we're doing at businesslegacypodcast.com. Again, businesslegacypodcast.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being part of the business legacy movement.